Amen. Right on. Hey, so we, uh, we come to Romans chapter 2 here. We spent three weeks in Romans chapter 1. Um, and really, like we're really, Romans really builds off this, especially chapter 2 here, I think really builds off of where we've been. And so I encourage you, you know, it's like awesome. I'm thankful for our, our sound team. They get like 99% of our sermons recorded. So if, if you want, you can go back and listen online and, and check out where we've been. But last week we were looking at Romans chapter 1 and, and Paul was giving us a diagnosis of the, the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of mankind. And it was like, it's pretty amazing to go through that passage because it's like a description of the, the culture. And we made this our way through that passage and we, we saw that Paul was declaring that men are without excuse when they neither glorify God or give thanks to him. They're, they're without excuse because God has made uh, the reality of his existence totally apparent through his creation, revealed through creation. And you know, when you, when you go through a passage like that, you know, us folks that have spent lots of times in the pew and sitting in the church, we're, we're quick to agree with those facts. We're like, yeah, that's right, culture. Don't you know? Can't you see? Open your eyes, man. God is out there. And I'm sure many of you are exactly the same. We're like, yeah, that's right. People are without excuse. And, you know, the context, because they're without excuse because God is clearly seen. And, and we have to remember that in this Roman church to which Paul is writing, there is this dynamic going on between the Gentiles and the Jews. You remember this? Let me just remind you that when the Roman church was born, it was really born by Jewish people. It was after Acts chapter 2 and people from all over the known world were there at Pentecost and were filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. They returned to their cities and churches were born and the Roman church was born out of that. We don't read any account of any of the apostles going there and planting the church. The church was established after Pentecost. And so as Paul writes here, this church is like 25 years old. And, and what had happened was this, is that the church began Jewish and the Gentiles began to get saved and they were mixed together with one another. And then the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, ticked off at the Jews, evicted them from the city of Rome. And so all the Jews were tossed out of Rome and now the church that was a blend of Jews and Gentiles was now completely Gentile. And what began to be born out of that was what we call today as replacement theology. That God is, God is, because the Jews rejected Jesus, they've been replaced by the church and the covenants all transfer, transfer over to the church. And this attitude and theology began to infiltrate the church. And then... When Nero came into power in Rome, he did this. He, he saw that a lot of the economy went down the tank with the Jewish people being removed from Rome because they were business people. He opened the doors. This is before he went too crazy. He opened the doors and he invited them to come back. And so now they come back and the Gentiles in the church have developed this attitude against their Jewish brothers in Christ. And so as we're going through the book of Romans, all through there, we're going to see this discussion about Gentile and Jew and this, and this whole mixture. And the Jews were a culture of people, 
as compared to the Gentiles who had grown up with the word of God. In a sense, they're like, you know, maybe the, the kid that's grown up in the pew spent their whole life knowing the word of God, knowing the Bible stories, knowing the accounts, knowing we're the chosen people. And so they were the ones with the heart that was just quick to say, as Paul was giving this explanation of the human condition, that's right, God can be clearly seen. Men are without excuse. And, and so, you know, they were quick, the ones that were quick to say, the unbeliever, the, the, the pagan is guilty of sin when they fail to glorify God and give him thanks. And, and that reaction is the same reaction that we can have as the church towards the culture outside and around us. And so it's, it's really interesting here that as Paul continues on the themes of where he's been, he's going to flip this whole argument upside down and he's going to turn it this morning. And he's going to turn it against us, the church. In that culture, he turns the argument against the Jew. That one says, that's right, you culture outside. And it's really interesting how he does this. Look at just the first four words of chapter 2. He says this. Therefore, you have no excuse. He's not talking about the world anymore. Not talking about the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of the pagan world. He, he's now talking to those who are inside the kingdom, not those on the outside. And he's speaking to us. He's speaking to us who count ourselves on the inside of the kingdom of God. And he says this, you have no excuse. Now in regards to all of these things that I've just told you in Romans chapter 1, you have no excuse. No excuse for what? What's he talking about? Well, he's going to begin to dissect the secrecy that happens in the heart of the believer. The secrecy that happens in the heart, I mean, below the surface of this man. You know, you can't see it, I can't see it inside of you. But below the surface, every one of our lives, uh, there, there's these thoughts and these attitudes that are going through our heart and going through our mind, and they're constantly happening in secret. I mean, we come to church, we raise our hands, the whole deal, we can play all the games, we know the thing. And Paul's going to address the secrecy of our hearts. And he's going to tell us that two things happen in our hearts. The condemnation of other people. And contempt for the way God is at work. And so he tells us in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you the judge practiced the very same things. He says, you, you who judge those committing sin, you take Romans chapter 1 and say, yeah, that's right, there it is. Who judge the, the lives of others who clearly line up with what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1, speaking of those who are involved in blatant sexual immorality and homosexuality and those who are evangelists of evil. We talked about those last week. You who judge those who approve such things in this forensic sort of sense, like you, you go in there and you do the investigation and you condemn the wrongs of others and you decide the verdict against them because you're the judge. He says you're guilty. You're guilty. As you judge others... He says, it's an indication of your, your own guilt. Judgment against another is an act of condemnation by which you decree the punishment. You decree the, 
the guilt that should be handed out against another's sin. You know, it's that old saying, you know, that old saying, you know, it's you point your finger. There they are, three pointing right back at me, the judge. And of course, you know, we, we, we hear people say this statement in culture. You, you, you hear it a lot outside of the church. Don't judge, you know, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me, you know? All of these sorts of things. But there is a balance, you know. Here what Paul is telling is, is this, is that we're not to condemn someone by, by judgment. Um, we're not to condemn them in our judgment. But at the same time, Jesus taught us this, that we're to watch out for false prophets. We're to watch out for those who would come to you in sheep's clothing, who inwardly are ferocious wolves. And Jesus said this, by, by the fruits of people's lives, you will recognize what they're about. And so we, we need to make judgments. I don't want to, this is important that we understand this. We need to make judgments, but our judgments that we're to make is to identify, not to condemn. Those are two different types of judgments, right? To identify. We need to identify the true and the false. We need to make judgment to see what is genuine and what is counterfeit. We need to make judgments in regards to those who would pose to be sheep and yet who are wolves. We, we are to make judgments to, to identify, but we are not to make judgments to condemn, Paul tells us. And all too often, what judgment has the church been known for? Us believers, we've been known for the judgment of condemnation. And there's a difference between judging fruit and knowing something is wrong as compared to self-righteously judging other people. And see, the problem with, with judging someone from, from the place of self-righteousness is this, is that you and I are not God. We're not God. I'm not God, you are not God, and therefore my judgments in regards to condemnation are never based on truth. They're not. Now this might shock you, but I'm going to fill you in. I, I have bias, you have bias, and your judgments, my judgments are unfair because they're not based on truth because in our judging of another, there are too many variables that we cannot perceive. I don't know what someone's thinking, I don't know what's going on in their heart, but here's the thing, God does. God always does. He always knows what's going on upstairs. He always knows what's going on 18 inches down in the heart. And therefore, his judgments are always just. They're always just. Check out verse two, he says this. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking about uh, us here, that God will judge, and when he does, his judgment will be in accordance with truth. Because no thought, no attitude of heart is hidden from him. No secret in the heart is beyond him. God perceives all things. And that's a beautiful thing, because it's very freeing for us, if we can get hold of this, that we can leave judgment up to him. That's the freeing thing. That, that's the beauty of the beauty of that means this, is that we can freely love other people knowing that God will judge. God will judge according to what is tr true. Look at verse three, he says this. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? 
that you will escape the judgment of God? He's talking here about, about self-righteousness. That's, that's, that's being in that place where we judge others in a condemning way. But, the self, but he says this, but the self-righteous will not escape the judgment of God. Really, what, what he's talking about here is contempt for God. The danger for the self-righteous person is actually this, is that they, they view the character of God in a skewed way. You know that when we get self-righteous, it begins to skew our vision of who God is. We begin to twist the patience of God or the power of God. We say, you know, he's, he's apathetic, he's impotent in terms of his power, and, and we give these justifications for why we can be self-righteous. Well, look at what he says here in verse four. Do you presume on the riches and the kindness and forbearance? Sorry, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's interesting here, Paul t- talks about the riches of God. The riches of of God that he has poured out upon the earth. You know, in, in our world, when we, when we talk about riches, what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about the economy with which we function. Money, man, dollar bills, dollar signs. And it's interesting that God's kingdom here is different. That the currency of his kingdom, the riches of his kingdom, is not equated to money. God's riches here, Paul tells us, the, the, the money, the currency of his kingdom is this. Kindness, forbearance, and patience. God's riches are shown in his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. And these, in, in these three things, he, he bestows abundantly upon the earth, richly, fully, totally, to Everyone. I mean, think about it for a minute. His kindness, God's kindness, the riches of his kindness. That that refers to the goodness of God, that God is good, and because he's good, he blesses us. He blesses us, sinner and saint alike. He meets our needs in this world. He blesses us spiritually. He provides for us. He provides for us with creation. We, We can work. We can make a living, we can provide for our families, and he does that upon all the earth, the righteous and the unrighteous. God, even in the spiritual realm, in his kindness, works on our behalf and for our favor, you know. He sends his angels, they're ministering spirits, spirits for the heirs of salvation. He's, he's in his kindness. He's doing it for all of mankind. He's good, he's kind. Paul says another thing about God's economy is this, is his forbearance. The NIV translates that, I like how it translates it, it says, uses the word tolerance. God is tolerant in his, in his riches. Of course, that's a, that's a buzz word for our culture, isn't it? Tolerance. But you know what? If you want to understand actually tolerance in its purest form, you have to look at the nature of God, not the definition of what our culture is using for that word tolerant. You know, it's actually strange how... how Tolerance has become this buzzword that our culture is actually wrongly defining. Where it seems to be these days that tolerance means, it means more than willingness to just put up with someone who's 
got a differing opinion than you. It means you have to accept them. Even though they differ or you don't agree with their behavior or whatever it is, but that is not the biblical idea of forbearance here or the biblical idea of the riches of God's tolerance. The biblical tolerance means this. It means patient self-control. It means a holding back, a delay of punishment. God is tolerant. He is holding back. He's holding back. His tolerance means that for now, God God has granted really clemency to those who treat his kindness with ingratitude or those who oppose his goodness. And they're just continuing to heap sin upon sin. God, God is rich in his tolerance towards us and he is rich in his clemency towards mankind. We talked about this at prayer a little bit on, I think it was Sunday night. Maybe it might have been with the men on Tuesday morning. But one of the things about the wrath of God that the Bible is telling us from Romans chapter one that his wrath is like milk on a stove. You ever boiled milk on a stove? It's like, okay, come on, you know. You, you, start, you start to get impatient and you turn the heat up a little bit and then you turn your back for one second and it's foamed over and it's burnt onto the stove and the whole deal. And the wrath of God, the tolerance of God is like that, the Bible is telling us, that it's like milk on a stove. It takes a long time, but when it comes, <laughs> it's not good. And so God is being tolerant He's having clemency. He's being rich towards mankind. He's also patient, Paul tells us. The riches of God's patient means towards us, God God is postponing his judgment. God thus far has given us lots of time, hasn't he? There's there's been lots of time. And in his kindness, Paul tells us, he's using this kindness to lead us Towards repentance. That's the economy of God's kingdom. Kindness, forbearance, patience. And so here's the deal. When we step in and we step into the seat of God, we sit down in his, on his throne. We say, I'm the judge. And we self-righteously judge others. What, what we're demonstrating is contempt against God contempt against his nature, against his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience. And when we, when we sit down in the seat of the judge, we're essentially saying this to God, though we don't realize it a lot of times. God, I'm disgusted at your character. I'm just, it ticks me off, God, that you're not like working on my timetable. I hate your kindness. I hate your tolerance. I hate your patience. I'm going to sit down as the self-righteous judge and I'm going to make the decision. But friends, what we have to remember is this, is what Paul tells us. It's like, no, you, you. It's the kindness of God that led you to repentance. It was all those things that you have an, you can develop an attitude of contempt for that led you to repentance. That's the truth. And so how could we elevate ourselves into the position of judge and jury when, you know, we don't have all the facts, we don't have the right character. And you know, it's a beautiful thing because what we really need to do is do this, is to extend grace towards one another, love towards one another, these very same things, patience, forbearance, kindness, tolerance. 
remembering that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. You know, if God just decided, let's deal with Matt with justice. I'm going to put justice on Matt's life. Look at it, I wouldn't be here. So praise God for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. Now here's the thing. This is, Paul is talking to those on the inside here now, isn't he? And so praise God for the, his riches his, of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. But if I take advantage of those things, I sit down in the judgment seat. Paul says this, you're, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Check it out in verse five. Because of your hard, impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. When he will render to each one according to his works. Now nowhere in life, like nowhere do you see this more clearly than in the ministry of Jesus. Throughout the gospels, Jesus hung out with who? Sinners, you know, prostitutes, you know, the demon possessed, the tax collectors, he healed them, he was at work in their life, he was doing awesome things, his disciples were with him and the religious elite called Jesus, you know, a glutton, they called him a drunkard. They said that he was demon-possessed. They called him the friend of sinners. And what was Jesus' response to that, to that group? He said this, it's not the healthy who need, a si- who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And time and time again, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus rebuked the self-righteous hypocritical Pharisee and he warned his disciples, do not become like that. And we need to hear that because it's like, that's the trajectory we're all on if we don't keep it in check. We face the same danger and as I read Romans 2, it's like such a warning right here. It's a warning for me, it's a warning for us. I want to warn you this, that self-righteous salvation is no salvation at all. If there's, a, if there's a, a salvation that is insecure, it's the salvation of self-righteous people. There's no security in that. And as we serve Christ, we must be on guard against the, the, the slide into the life of the Pharisee, the slide into the conduct of the Pharisee. And Paul says this, because of the hardness and the, the stubbornness of hearts, because of the... The, the impenitent nature of the heart, the unrepentant attitudes of heart, the self-righteous attitudes. Human judges, he says, will inherit the wrath of God when his righteous judgment is revealed and, and God will give, according, give to us according to what we've done, he says. I like it, it's not very comfortable, is it? Look at verse seven. He says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God 
shows no partiality. Of course, you know, Paul's not saying that salvation comes by works here. That's not what he's saying. What he, what he is saying is that, that God's judgment of every man will be according to his works, and that is specifically a, a truth that is for those who are not followers of Jesus. They will stand before the white throne of judgment, and God will judge their works. And if they persist in, in doing good and seeking glory and honor and immortality, he says, God will give them eternal life. What do you say? Just be perfect. Just have it all together. Just do it all perfectly right. God will give you eternal life. But if they've been self-seeking, rejecting truth, or following evil, he says there'll be wrath and there will be anger. And so he's saying this, it's, oh, as he's having this discussion, he's like, it's pretty easy. Just be perfect. <laughs> Just be perfect and glorify God with all your heart and everything you do and, and you're in. And obviously we know the problem that there's only one man who ever did that, right? The God man, Jesus. You know, I love, there, there's a story of a politician that I've read before. He was sitting down to get his photo taken and as he sat down, he said to the photographer, you make sure that this picture does me justice. And the photographer replied, he said, with a face like yours, you shouldn't ask for justice but mercy. <laughs> and you know, it's true for you and I. We don't want God's justice. We want mercy. And his mercy is provided to us as we come to him through Jesus Christ who shed his blood, gave his life for us on the cross. And so the warning is clear for those who know Christ Jesus. As, as we go out into this world and as we survey humanity, the mess around us, I flicked my phone on this morning just to check the news. It was like terrorist act in Edmonton last night. Did you see that? Two? There you go. Like, as we go out into this, this world and we survey humanity around us and it's broken and it's a mess and we look at it through the lens of Romans chapter one, here's, here's just the reality of what Paul wants us to know. That there's no room for self-righteousness in that. We're no better than anyone else. God, he says, doesn't play favorites. God does not show favoritism. God is not partial, he says. Well, I thought I was God's favorite. Yeah. I thought that in all the universe, there were special rules just for me. <laughs> but the reality is, I, I'm like joking, right? But it's a bit of an attitude that we all have in our life. Well, we say, yeah, that's right, God. Over there. <laughs> That's self-righteousness. There's special rules for me. But Paul tells us God does not play favorites or show partiality. And that truth can be seen, he says, look at verse 12, in the way that he deals with sin. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so people are judged by God whether they have the law or not. They're judged because they have sinned. There's that old question that people love to ask, you know, it's like, how can, how, can, how can God judge someone who's never heard the word of God, never had the 10 commandments proclaimed to them, no missionaries ever come to their culture, how can God judge that people group? 
that's never been reached with the gospel. And what's the standard by which God judges someone if they don't have the word? They don't have the law of God. Well, he's going to circle around here in a second. So we'll come back to that discussion. So just kind of file it for a minute. But look at verse 13. He says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who will be justified. To me, this is the key, probably the key verse in this chapter. If, if, you're gonna, if you're underlining or circling, this is your one. This principle is important. And the longer you know the Lord and walk with the Lord, the more important this principle right here becomes. It, it's important that we grasp this. There's a tendency in our culture, we're a culture that loves knowledge. It's my phone. Just like knowledge, man. We're like inundated with knowledge and wisdom and information and facts. And the same thing is happening in the church, probably more than any other age in the history of the world, right? We, we study the scriptures. We gain knowledge to the word of God. We can turn on podcasts and radio stations and websites and we can like be listening to teaching and Bible studies nonstop all the time and we should. It renews our minds. It's a good thing. But one of the dangers is this, that we begin to equate the accumulation of knowledge with obedience, Gathering knowledge and obeying the things that we're learning, those are two different things. J James says this, he says that you deceive yourself if you just merely listen to the word and you don't do what it says. Turn with me to John chapter 13 in your Bibles. Knowing the word and obeying the word are two different things. And Jesus gave a simple test for our lives. This is a good verse. It's a simple test to say, okay, am I just a hearer or am I a doer? John chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse. 17 says this if you know these things blessed are you if you do them he's talking about knowledge of the word and obedience to the word and he said the connecting point for you to know that there's doing happening is blessed blessed B blessed Blessed, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know that uh, the word blessing just simply means happy. You can judge your ability, your, where you're at with the doing of the word by the happiness of your heart. If you want a way to just judge yourself to say, am I happy? Is there joy in my life? Am I getting out of bed with a song in my heart? Am I singing the name of Jesus in the shower? Is Jesus coming with me to work and in the midst of the politics and the crap that's going on there, 
the mess in my family, whatever it is, is there a joy seated and rooted in my life? That, that, that's one of the ways that you can determine, you can help just do a self-diagnosis. Are you a doer of the word? You, you'll be happy. You'll have joy. And on the other hand, if you're simply hearing the word and not doing it, there'll be a lack of blessing and a lack of joy in your life. It's what we do with the words that affect us. Turn back to Romans chapter 2. He says this in verse 14. For when, the, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Key word in that verse 15 is the word conscience. So here Paul tells us how a person is, can be condemned without ever hearing the word of God if they've never heard the word of God proclaimed to them or preached to them. How can they be condemned? Paul says it's because of their conscience. Because the law is written on the conscience. That's enough to condemn them. And theor theoretically, it's enough to justify them before God if they perfectly live according to that conscience. Men and women, he tells us, he's telling us this, they instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. There's no culture in the world where murder is just totally accepted. It's okay. There's no culture in the world where incest is like considered normal. No, no culture in the world where people go, yeah, it's right to, to hurt little kids. No culture in the world where we'd say stealing is okay, you know. I mean, you might put up with ripping off people in one direction, but you say, not in our family. You know, or where lying is okay. Th these things are written on the heart of mankind. And by nature, we know what right and wrong is, and God is going to judge us on the basis, or judge those without the word of God on the basis of, how they live according to what they know. And he's going to judge us on the basis of how we live according to what we know. We've had the privilege of the word of God and the gospel being proclaimed to us. Look at verse 16. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Nobody will be able to plead innocence with God the tribal person who grew up in the jungle without the word of God will be judged by his conscience that he's ignored or violated. The Jew will be judged based on their conduct, the Greek on their conduct. will be judged based on our obedience to the knowledge that we have of the scriptures. Mankind will be held, held accountable here. But I love that Paul says this. He says, he, he refers to the gospel here. He says, it's my gospel. He, he puts that personal pronoun right. It's mine. On that day, according to my gospel, when God judges the secrets of men's heart, what, what he's saying is this. Can, we need to be able to say my gospel. That the gospel is mine. That the good news is mine. That though God is going to judge mankind on his conscience and his word, that my gospel is this. That those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will see, receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Can you say that the gospel of Christ Jesus is my good news? 
It's God's mercy to me. Paul here talks about a day of judgment. A day of judgment that's apart from good news. And he says, I'm going to, proclaiming the day of judgment is part of my gospel. That there's a day of judgment coming. And if the gospel isn't yours, if it isn't the identifying factor of your life, your faith in Jesus Christ, then that day of judgment should be a day of terror for you. Where mankind, mankind will be held accountable for his actions. And so Paul warns us here. He, he flips back to this discussion again. And he begins to warn about attitudes of superiority. superiority and he begins to speak specifically to the Jew. But I think it, it lands well for us too. Uh, he speaks about their attitudes of superiority in regards to two things. That they have the commandments, the word of God, and that they have the covenant of circumcision. Check out verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed of the law, uh, well, let me pause there for a second. He's saying this. The Jews, they brag in regards to their possession of the law. We received the commandments. They were given to Moses. They were given to us as a people. We have the law. We know. Don't tell us kind of thing. We're instructed by the law. We know because what we know is superior. And it's really easy for us to have that same attitude as Christians. We say, well, we have the Bible. We know. We know. Which we do. But the attitude and all that matters. He goes on in verse 19. He says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Again, he's speaking to the Jew, and Paul's saying this. this. He's, saying, he's saying, just because you have information, just because you have knowledge, just because you possess the law, that doesn't mean you're justified before God. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Oh, oh now he's going to like start to poke at the heart of mankind. The heart of us, the believer. It's like, do you steal? No, I don't steal. Prophet Malachi came to the nation of Israel and he said, return to God. He said, return? We're the Jewish people. We have the word of God. How can you tell us to return? Return to God. Well, what do we need to... He says, well, you're robbing God. Robbing God? What are you talking about? How are we robbing God? And why would you tell us to return? And he pointed to the tithe. He said, yeah, you, you're not tithing. You're a thief. Look at verse 22. He said, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols... Do you rob temples? We know what Jesus said about adultery, right? That it happens in the heart first. I'm not committing adultery. Well, what about in your heart? What about the lusts of your heart? The Old Testament prophets turned that conversation 
uh, about adultery into the dabbling of worship of other false gods. You're bowing down to Baal. You're taking sacrifices here. You're offering bread to the queen of heaven. You're doing this. You're doing that. You know, we all got our areas. I'm like, you cut me, I bleed Canuck green and blue, you know. I'm like, Lord, help me with my stuff. We have our idols. And nobody, I know nobody else in the room has got that problem, so yeah, thanks, stars. I see that hand. Verse 23 you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Paul's saying this, hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Jew, the hypocrisy of the religious elite, it gave room for the Gentiles to blaspheme God. And, and that's what sin does in the church. Sin in the church gives room for the unbelieving to have reasons not to become a follower of Jesus. You know, more often than we like to admit, Christians are the reason why some people don't want to follow Jesus. I mean, how many times have you been told, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites? You're like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and... And so Paul tells us, having the law, knowing the law of God, possessing information doesn't justify you. Only Jesus can justify you. We're not, we're not justified by having information. We're justified by putting our faith in Christ alone. Uh, it's a, it's the, uh, October 31st is the 500th, 500th year of the Reformation, right? Martin Luther. On the 29th year, we're going to show a great documentary. Lisa and I kind of watch it at home. PBS has just come out with it. It's called uh, Martin Luther, The Idea That Changed the World, Justified by Faith. We're justified by faith, not by knowledge. We're justified by the fact that we put our hope in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, man. The rest, my self-righteousness, this Man, God strip us of that stuff. Jesus alone. Paul is saying to the Jew here, you're, you're not superior because you have the commandments. And then he says this, and you're not superior because you have the covenant of circumcision. You know, when you think about the Jews, there's a few things that have enabled them to keep their national identity for thousands of years, even when they didn't have a land, country of their own. Once a Sabbath, They've always practiced the Sabbath as a cultural group, as a people. And the second thing is this, is their, their kosher diet, you know? They've always taken that all around the world, wherever they go. You can go into Vancouver and go for a nice kosher meal. And the third thing is this, is the covenant of circumcision, the practice of circumcision within their culture of their males. And the Jewish practice of circumcision is a symbolic picture of of the removing of the flesh. And Paul is going to tell us that, that Jewish circumcision doesn't matter unless God has done the same work in your heart. And the application is this, and this is important. The application is, what he's saying is this, is that you are not saved by symbols. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a few minutes here. We're we are not saved by coming to the Lord's table. 
So many people say, well, I've been baptized. You are not saved by baptism. Paul is telling you, you are not justified by your participation in a symbol. They're important. Symbols are important. We've been given the Lord's table. We've been commanded to come to it. We've been commanded to practice baptism, but they are symbols and they do not save us. And so he says this in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Genesis chapter 17, Abraham made covenant with God a covenant that was to exist between himself and God and his descendants and God. And Abraham entered into that covenant with God by what? Faith. He entered in with God by faith and God gave him a sign of that covenant of faith. In your, within your culture, you're to circumcise your males. And Paul says that that act of removing the flesh is pointless if you don't obey the law. It's as though it never happened. It's as though the symbol doesn't matter. And vice versa, if, if you're not circumcised and you obey the law, he says, it, you're regarded as if you are. Look at verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So again, this, this symbol of their covenant was an outward sign of something that was to be an inward reality. That's where we come to the table. This is an outward sign of an inward reality. We go into the waters of baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And circumcision was this outward sign and illustration of the fact that God was dealing with the flesh. The flesh was going to be removed. You know, it's interesting that the Bible tells us our hearts are to be circumcised. Our ears are to be circumcised. Our lips are to be circumcised. It means this. Speak with tenderness. Hear with sensitivity. Feel with compassion. Because here's the thing, what, what, I guess if we're to bring it right around here, here's the thing, what's happening on the inside no man can see. It was really beautiful to hear about Sam yesterday and people were talking about his character. And it was like, man, Blake pulled out. If you, if you weren't there, Blake pulled out. They found uh, a mission statement that Sam had written about his life. Uh, just recently, and it just proclaimed how he was going to act in his desire to honor the Lord. And uh, it was really beautiful because it was like the character of this man was rooted in something that others maybe didn't know about him. It was his relationship with Jesus. What Paul is telling us here is that what's happening on the inside, that, that's what really matters. Outward expression is really meaningless if it's not accompanied with an inward reality. Outward expression is meaningless if it's not accompanied with an inward reality and an inward experience. And so last couple of verses, he says this. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, God help us to want to have the praise of God. Living our lives to say, God, that's, that's so often the problem of self-righteousness. We want the praise of men. And we have lives that want the praise of God. A couple takeaways. Let me just give you a few things if you haven't caught them this morning. Number one, make judgments to identify, not to condemn. Number two, we face the danger of becoming Pharisees. There is no room for self-righteousness. And number three, don't mistake knowledge of the word with obedience to that word of God. This morning, let's pray. Would you guys stand with me? I can invite the worship team to come. We're gonna come to the Lord's table. What a sweet time to come to the Lord's table. We'll be